So here's my uh, task today, my challenge, is we want to reflect a little bit on Palm Sunday, but we also want to continue to move our journey closer toward the cross and toward the resurrection. So um, we're going to read a passage of Scripture from Luke 23, which is not the Palm Sunday passage, but I'm going to try to tie the two together. So you're going to have to pay attention for that. As we're going to the Scripture uh, lesson for today, I want you to pay attention to what were people expecting from Jesus. These people had a... a very specific expectation for him. We're going to figure out how that had to play. But So we're in Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be. If you've got your Bible or your phone or some other device you want to read along with me, turn to Luke 23, and we're going to start with verse 13. Before we read this, I want you to know that you are in my prayers, and this is my prayer for you. The Lord be with you. Luke 23, 13. Pilate called together the chief priests the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Now jump down just a couple verses to verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, "'Father, forgive them,' for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was a written notice placed above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there also hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So one thing everyone seems to focus on this time of year is the fact that Jesus is amazing, and we love Him, and we're so thankful for all the many things that He's done. I don't know if you've ever noticed that this time of year, every year, there is a lot of press for Jesus. He gets special editions of Newsweek and Time and USA Today. He gets specials on the National Geographic Channel, on public radio. He gets a lot of celebration. And people look at him as being amazing. I mean, he was a great teacher, a great moral example. Jesus loved people. 
Jesus fed the hungry and performed miracles and healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He welcomed little children, put them on his lap. He ate with sinners and outcasts. Jesus preached good news about deliverance from oppression and freedom for the prisoners. He roamed the countryside announcing God's love for all people. And people love this stuff. Actually, I want you to turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you to tell them something you love about Jesus. Go ahead, turn right now. Something you love about Jesus. I find it interesting that when they take polls, even today, about who, uh, who are popular historical figures, Jesus is always near the top. When they ask people, would you li- who would you like to meet from history, Jesus is almost always in the top ten. People would like to meet Jesus. They love Jesus. People loved him. People in Jesus' day also loved him. They were fascinated by him. The crowds loved Jesus. In fact, as you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you find that very early in the story, every time Jesus went anywhere, there was a crowd following him. This is the first time it's mentioned. It's in Luke chapter 5. The news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and, he, and to be healed of their sickness. When Jesus showed up, crowds of people showed up. They wanted to be near him. The crowds were actually so large at times that at a couple of passages, Luke reports that there was a risk of those in the crowd being trampled because the crowd was kind of in a frenzy trying to get close to Jesus. And there's actually one passage in Luke where it describes Jesus as being at risk of being trampled because the crowd was pressing in so close to him. They wanted to be near Jesus. They loved Jesus. Not everyone was thrilled with these large crowds. The religious leaders who were watching Jesus over his ministry actually got quite nervous about the crowds. They were concerned that these crowds might go crazy and become a mob. And nobody in this day wanted to be part of a crowd that was a mob. The Romans looked very seriously on that. They interpreted it as a riot and would squash it brutally. Uh, We even saw a little bit about the worry about the crowd at the very beginning of this journey. When we started a few weeks ago looking at this journey toward the cross, we started in Luke chapter 22, and the very first paragraph in Luke 22 is this. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, and they agreed to give him money. And so he consented, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Everyone recognized that the crowd could go crazy. They didn't want to risk that because Jesus was so popularity. And at no point in Jesus' ministry do we see how great the popularity was more than on that Palm Sunday. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem riding on the donkey, we see that people press in immediately to try to get close to him. They loved Jesus. This is the way it's described in Luke 19. They brought the colt to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it, and he went along. People spread their coats on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory to the highest. Now some of the Pharisees and religious leaders in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, 
Rebuke your disciples. They were nervous. This is starting to look like a riot. But Jesus replied, I tell you this, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is how great it was for Jesus. This is like fun stuff. The crowd is excited. Everybody's cheering. Everybody loves Jesus. But this could easily turn into a mob. And I wonder if the religious leaders watching this were super nervous until somebody in that crowd, one of the Pharisees or scribes, got an idea, said this turning into a mob would be terrible unless we could turn the mob into our favor. What if we could use the mob to accomplish our purpose? What if we could flip the crowd? And I imagine that some Pharisee had some brilliant idea that day to use this crowd against them. Do you know the term mob psychology? Have you ever heard that? This is actually a study of psychologists that look at the way crowds behave. And they've discovered that people will do things in a crowd that they would never do as individuals. That something about being in a large group and being kind of anonymous and not having personal responsibility for your behavior, people in a crowd will do unexpected things, things they would never do one-on-one. In layman's turn, mob psychology is crowds will do crazy things. Uh, One of the psychologists who studied this is a guy named William McDougall, and this is how he describes a mob. A mob is excessively emotional, impulsive, fickle, inconsistent, irresolute, and extreme in action, extremely suggestible, careless in deliberation, hasty in judgment, easily swayed and led, lacking in self-consciousness. Hence, the mob's behavior is like that of an unruly child. So this is what a mob is capable of doing. Individually, people loved Jesus. They loved him. They loved what he was doing. They loved what he stood for. They loved his message. Even Pilate, it seems to me, loved Jesus. As I was reading through this this week, I was thinking, you know what? Pilate tried really hard to get Jesus off the hook. He came to the crowd three times and said, hey, listen, I like this guy. I've looked at what he said, and I've watched what he's done, and he has done nothing that deserves death. He is, he's innocent. We should set him free. But Pilate recognizes the mob's ability to go crazy. And so I think he's going to play it safe and say, okay, listen, I think he's innocent, but this is what I'll do. I'll beat him and then I'll let him go. And the crowd doesn't want anything to do with this. The mob does go crazy. This is the way it was described. The whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas, the guy who led an insurrection, who was a murderer. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will punish him and then I will release him. But the loud shouts from the crowd insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Pilate throws up his hands. He says, I'm going to give you what you want. He sends Barabbas free. He sends Jesus to his death. And this is the last step, really. Once this comes, there's approval 
to crucify Jesus, and now the only thing left to do is carry out the sentence. And so Jesus is led away, he's led up Mount Calvary, and he is nailed to the cross, and people watch him die. Now, one of the big questions I have every Palm Sunday is this. How does the crowd go from Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him. How do they flip? I'm sure that some of this is probably mob psychology, these impulsive, fickle, emotional, unruly, extreme in action, careless in deliberation, hasty in judgment people flip because they're part of a large crowd that has just flipped. But how could they flip from love for Jesus, maybe even a first love kind of thing, like they adored him, how could they flip to being angry, hateful people demanding his crucifixion? And if they can flip, could we flip in our love for Jesus? That question sometimes keeps me up at night. I know I can lose my first love. I know that I can be apathetic about Jesus. I know that sometimes I can be filled with doubt about my faith. I know that I am not beyond denying Jesus as Peter did. I know I'm capable of these things. This morning, or actually late last night, this song came to my mind. It's an old hymn, and one of the lines from the hymn is, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Am I capable of despising Jesus? Am I capable of flipping? So I was thinking about that as I was reading through this passage in Luke 23, and I noticed that near the end of this reading, there, were, uh, there was a phrase that was repeated three times. And I wondered if this phrase didn't have something to do with crowd flipping. And I wondered if it also might be a clue to our flipping sometimes. So the phrase first shows up in verse 35, chapter 23, verse 35. The crowd stood watching, and the rulers sneered at Jesus, and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah. And then the very next verse, the soldiers also came up, and they mocked Jesus. And they offered him wine vinegar, and they said, If you are the Messiah, save yourself. And then, a couple of verses later, one of the criminals who was hanging there also hurled insults at Jesus and said, If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. Well, this is what the Palm Sunday crowd was cheering. Hosanna, Hosanna means save us, save us. They're crying out with a very definite expectation that Jesus is going to come and save them. And they had every right to have this expectation because they've been watching Jesus and his behavior has been very Messiah-like. He's been doing the kinds of things you would expect a Messiah to do. He has been performing wonderful signs, miraculous signs. He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, loved the poor. That's what messiahs do. He gave sight to the blind, that's a biggie. That's really a sign that someone might be the Messiah. He raised someone from the dead, that's another huge sign. 
What else could Messiah do? Maybe Messiah could come with power and throw the Romans out. This is something they'd long for a long time. Get rid of those, those despicable Romans. Maybe he could establish Israel as a great nation. Maybe he could be the Messiah who raises up an army and makes them powerful again. Maybe he's going to come and give them economic security. Maybe this Jesus Messiah will come and put food on my table and put food in my belly. Maybe he'll cure my ailments. Wouldn't that be great? We would love that guy, wouldn't we? I mean, if he could come do all that for us, wouldn't that... You would love that guy. They had high expectations, and it occurred to me that the buzz of these expectations were so high that everyone picked up on it. The religious leaders, they're like, hey, yeah, okay, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. And the Roman soldiers, the guys who were carrying out the the execution, even picked up on this. So they mocked Jesus. Hey, If you're the Messiah, come down and save yourself. We'd like to see that too. They'd like to see a powerful display like that. Come down off the cross. And of course, the criminal, the one who spoke up at least, had this thought. Well, save yourself. And by the way, if you can get yourself off the cross, then get us off too. Save us. Everyone has this hyped up expectation. They would like to see Messiah come with amazing power and immediately set everything right, fix everything that's broken, give them everything their hearts desire. That's what they expected from the Messiah. And then this is what happens next. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last Everybody wanted Jesus the Messiah to come and show up with great power and set everything right that was wrong. And instead, Jesus does not save himself. He offers himself up as a sacrifice. Jesus the Messiah surrenders. He suffers. Jesus the Messiah makes himself a sacrifice, and the crowd is so disappointed. They had high expectations that Jesus was going to do something spectacular. They didn't expect him to die on a cross. He did not save himself, and so they conclude he must not be able to save us either. And their expectations were dashed. This is the story of his whole life, if you look at it from a certain perspective. Born in an obscure village the illegitimate child of a peasant girl, the son of a carpenter, an itinerant preacher with no, no place to call home, always on the move from village to village. He never went to college, never held an office, never wrote a book, never had a YouTube channel, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born, never pastored a church, never led a rebellion. He never did any of these things. He never took the place of honor, but instead took on the form of a servant The same one who calmed the raging sea, who fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, who turned water into wine, who walked on water, who cleansed the leper's spots, who lived a perfect life. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that by the age of 33, he was crucified by those despicable Romans and his life came to an end. Some Messiah, huh? If you were following Jesus, expecting him to do great and powerful things, 
at this moment, you would be really disappointed in him. And I wonder if that level of disappointment is enough to turn our first love to cool it off. If I want something from Jesus and he does not deliver, is that enough to turn our Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him? Confession. So the reason I'm thinking about this is because I've had times in my life when I was convinced that I knew exactly what Jesus should do for me. I had a very specific plan in mind. And then my life did not work out the way I thought it should. And so then I wondered what Jesus was doing. Jesus, save me, is a prayer I've prayed. And he didn't always do it. I prayed at one point in my life for Jesus to save my marriage. Prayed for Jesus to heal my diabetes. I prayed for him to deliver me from depression. I prayed that God would implement plans that I've made that I thought were really good plans. I prayed for people that I love a lot. God save them. Save them from cancer. Save them from addiction. Rescue them from heartache. And Jesus didn't do what I prayed for. I had an expectation that Jesus was going to deliver. And then he didn't. And that can make my love grow cold. I even had this just yesterday. So Mary went out on a shopping trip with some girlfriends. And so I'm going to be Mr. Efficient and ambitious and get a whole bunch of things done. So I got a big long list of stuff. My morning went really well. But after I had lunch, I went out to the car to continue checking things off my list. And my car was in the garage with a front tire completely flat. It's been so long since I've changed a flat tire, I'm not even sure I know how. But I find all the right stuff, get the thing jacked up, and then it, I'm, I'm not proud of this, but it took me 45 minutes to get the lug nuts off. And after I got the lug nuts off, I'm going to pop that baby off and put the spare on, and I cannot get the tire off. So I have to go YouTube how to get a tire off a car when it's stuck. And I did every suggestion they had, kicking the thing, hitting it with a hammer, all kinds of stuff. 45 minutes later, the tire is still on the car. Now I've spent more than an hour and a half, and I'm still sitting in my garage, not sure what to do. And about this time, I'm having this thought, I'm a good guy, God. Why don't you help me get this tire off this car? You know, have you ever been there where you think, I have an expectation that God's going to provide for me, and he's going to make my way go easy and smooth, and everything's going to work out just the way I want it to, and then God doesn't do it. That kind of an expectation can mess with your love. So Jesus, everyone was expecting him to ride into Jerusalem with great power and lead a rebellion and fix everything right there in that moment with great power. And they were crying for that. Hosanna, save us, save us. They expected Jesus to save it by doing something amazing and save everyone that was there. But instead... Jesus did not save himself. He went to the cross and offered himself. 
And by doing that, made a way to save everyone. That's what he accomplished. So the great exchange in this passage is not exchanging Barabbas for Jesus. The great exchange in this passage is Jesus taking our place, exchanging himself for us to take the punishment that we deserved. And the Bible talks about this in a lot of places. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He exchanged Jesus for us to pay the price for our sin so that we could become God's children, his daughters and his sons. That was the great exchange that happened on Palm Sunday and was completed throughout the rest of this holy week. Jesus knew what he was doing, and even though it went against the crowd, it went against their expectations, he did what he was called to do, and that is why I love Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and I want to thank you for meeting with us here today, for being in our worship, and for being in these words of truth from your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is hovering over this place and continuing to guide us. And we ask that you'll begin, uh, or you'll continue the good work that you have begun in each of us. And, and Lord God, we'll be careful to give you thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.